I'll take first watch. Hello, welcome to an all new episode of the First Watch Podcast. I'm Zach, and I'm here with Cole. How are you? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing great. And we are joined today by Zach, the other Zach in parentheses, back joining us again. You're on one of the very first episodes of this podcast where we talked about licorice pizza together. Yes, I was. That was a great time. Great movie. Yes. Really happy to have you back, man. How are you? I'm doing good. I've sort of been out of the podcast game for a while. So this is my first episode back in like a year or something. Oh, man. Half a year, maybe. Wow. So I'm just glad to be able to talk about movies again. Well, we've got a bunch, I think, to talk about today. I'll go ahead and kick us off, actually, because I just saw a couple movies over the weekend. One of them is the upcoming Netflix release, Noah Baumbach's adaptation of White Noise, which is based on a novel by Don DeLillo from the 1980s, which is like a satirical portrait of America and consumerism. And like a lot of DeLillo, it's considered to be a little bit unadaptable. Uh, audiences, listeners might be familiar with Osmopolis, the David Cronenberg movie that's based on DeLillo. The guy's concepts are a little heady, tough to convert into cinema. The film stars Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig as a couple of a nuclear family that are just kind of at the center of this satirical representation of the United States. And so they're very exaggerated characters, but Bombach imbues his adaptation with his own sensibilities and kind of brings out what I kind of felt like was theater, like a stage adaptation of this novel that tried to kind of imbue the characters with a little bit more interior and humanity. And it was just a kind of interesting blend of styles that is probably going to alienate a lot of people that watch it, but will make for interesting conversations for those that are interested in those kind of cerebral topics that the film is about. It's an interesting follow-up to Marriage Story, I'll say that. I think a lot of people who maybe came into it thinking like, yeah. ooh, new Adam Driver Bamba. <laughs> it seems like a departure for sure. <laughs> One of the things that's really interesting about it, I think I would say it's the most ambitious Bombach film to date. And part of that is the difficulty of the adaptation. And another part of that is it's his most formally ambitious to date. He got a $100 million budget and used it to make a few expansive set pieces and a few uh, Brian De Palma homages, actually. like There's one particular point when Adam Driver's character is breaking apart these compacted trash cubes. He's looking for something in the trash. And the camera is circling around the garage in a clear homage to Blowout. That's awesome. Which I thought was interesting because, as Bombach and De Palma heads may know, Noah Bombach directed a Brian De Palma documentary. Yeah, I actually recently watched that. So that's really awesome that it has that homage to De Palma himself for probably my favorite of his movies as well. There's a split diopter shot, oh, actually, yes. in the climax of White Noise. I was like, oh, there oh, wow. it is. Hell yeah. Actually, there was a split diopter shot in the other movie that I saw in theaters. But uh, Cole, I know you're going to talk about that one, so we'll skip it. What have you been watching lately? Well, to kick things off, I'm going to start with a cannibal romance. I just saw Bones and All earlier today. It's the newest film by Luca Guadagnino. It's about Marin, who's played by Taylor Russell, a young adult who's abandoned by her father. 
just for the sake of spoilers, I won't say why. So all she has is her birth certificate with her mother's name and the hometown that she was born in. So she goes on a journey across America trying to find her mother. And along the way, she runs into Lee, played by Timothy Chalamet, another disenfranchised cannibal like her. And they sort of eke out this coexistence together in a way that only two people who eat other people can. Because, well, there's no room in 80s America for cannibals. It seems like a little bit of a take on the Badlands concept, Terrence Malik's debut film. There's definitely a lot of that in there. A lot of really gorgeous imagery of the American Midwest and all these like rural, small towns that look like something that popped up after an apocalyptic event. (laughs) Just abandoned, worn out, run down. How did you find Mark Rylance? I've heard some mixed (laughs) reception on his performance. Uh, Terrifying. Oh, okay, cool. Like he's actually, honestly, MVP. Just Wow, okay. Terrifying. He's the first cannibal that Marin runs into after she leaves home. At first he sounds completely ridiculous. He kind of sounds like that... uh, Whatever that old man is on Family Guy. Oh, Herbert yeah. the pervert? Yes. He gonna sound like this. <laughs> yeah, just like oh, that. <laughs> and then he like carries around a long rope of braided hair from each of the people that he's, you know, eaten. So I would say not my favorite Guadagnino by a long shot, but good movie. The other film that I saw recently, or not, I mean, not too recently, I caught this at AFI Fest a couple of weeks back. Yeah, the truth is, I saw this film recently. I saw it last night. <laughs> <laughs> but this is The Eternal Daughter, the new film by British filmmaker Joanna Hogg. It's kind of like a thematic sequel or continuation to The Souvenir. So this is a film about a mother and daughter, Julie and Rosalind, both played by Tilda Swinton. Notably, Julie is also the name of the main character in The Souvenir, played mm-hmm. by Swinton's yep. daughter. Okay, so is it actually like something that might actually be like a theoretical sequel? Uh... I don't think, I don't know. <laughs> I hear a lot of people talking about those vibes. I didn't 100% get it, but I guess I can see it. With the names of the characters matching, I can kind of piece it together a little more. I mean, The Souvenir does take place in the 80s, so. You know, Ra and Titan, the two Ducournau films, I believe both of those films have characters that share the same names. I think it's kind of like a Mikhail Hanukkah, Anna and Georg. Like, it's just reusing the name. But it is a filmmaker character named Julie, who's pretty clearly based on Joanna Hogg herself. Where her mother is played by an elderly Tilda Swinton. So they go spend Rosalind's birthday weekend in the manor that she was born and raised in that now functions as a hotel in the English countryside. And over the course of the weekend, Julie, who's been in a bit of a struggle lately trying to find inspiration for her art, for her filmmaking, starts to unravel all the secrets and memories of her mother's past. This is a gorgeous, amazing, haunting movie. It was shot on 16 millimeter. I found myself a lot of times comparing it to the cinematography of Spencer from last year. Very misty, grainy. Great way of putting atmospheric. it. You kind of feel like you're in a haunted house. It's like a English manor yeah. as haunted house. One of the things that's percolating up are the memories of the mother Swinton character when she stayed here during World War II which is when she was brought to the manor because it was the property of her aunt, I think. And her parents sent her there during the war. You're kind of bringing in the history of England and the history of World War II. It's kind of just doom and gloom hanging over everything. 
I thought of several different movies, but the ones that really popped out were Robert Altman's Three Women, which I don't want to elaborate on too much. If you've mm-hmm. seen it, you know. And Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers really revolves around the same concept of like, every room in the house is a memory, every object is a memory, and characters kind of get sent back into their own pasts based on recollections. Terrence Davies may be another example here. Yeah, absolutely. That's another. That's all about the power of an object that you have your memories attached to. I believe this one's out on VOD now, but if you can catch it in theaters, absolutely do so. It's a gorgeous, beautifully shot, beautifully directed, very moving, and honestly, slightly heartbreaking movie. I think it demands a little patience. Of course. Yeah. As do all of Hawk's films. I would highly recommend, even if you don't really care about them, continuity of a relationship between all the films watching those souvenir films really integral in how i approached watching and reading and interpreting all the different images in the eternal daughter also want to shout out just really briefly the concierge <laughs> who is one of the funniest movie characters he was great the the girl is right oh the reception i thought you were talking about bill <laughs> bill was really good bill's great too that was one of the most heartbreaking to me in the movie but i'll leave that for viewers to see I will say this. One thing I really liked about that conversation is it's framed like a filmmaker talking to a subject as if in a documentary. It's that sort of curiosity that a filmmaker has to probe into, oh, tell me your story. Tell me about your memories. You know, And that just was sort of reflective of the character of Julie to me. I can see that. Yeah. Absolutely. So Zach, how about you? Seen anything lately? So me, I saw the new Ryan Johnson whodunit, Glass Onion. It's like the theater movie of the month, of the season, of the release cycle. Essentially. Except. It was. For some reason only was played for like a week. And then they actually realized that they were doing really well. And now (laughs) Netflix wants to try to get it back in theaters. Wow. To make more money. Yikes. Lesson learned, folks. Lesson learned. The lesson being, if you make a sequel to a hit movie that did really well in theaters, put the movie in theaters. I can guarantee you that Knives Out 3, whatever it's going to be called, whatever song it's titled after, <laughs> is going to play in theaters a lot longer than a week. Mm-hmm. But yeah, great movie that I really enjoyed. I thought the cast was great. I feel like Dave Bautista is really always surprising me in roles. Leslie Odom Jr. is really great too. Daniel Craig, I don't know if you guys heard, but the like original concept was that for every Knives Out movie, they were going to do a different, insane accent for Daniel Craig. And I kind of wish that they stuck with that. Uh, how I wish. That would have been so great. And then Janelle Monae like absolutely steals the entire show throughout the movie. And I obviously don't want to give too much away because it is a murder mystery, of course. But I wish you guys could see it in theaters. I really wish that was possible because I had a great time. I had a wonderful crowd who laughed at jokes probably more than what was maybe intended, but it just made it for a great experience, honestly. I saw this on Thanksgiving Day with Fablemans. Same here. And same thing. Real great crowd experience. Well, I know that you had kind of a different <laughs> experience. Want to tell us about uh, that. Yeah, my lonely, lonely little island. <laughs> uh, I hated this movie. <laughs> we, oh, I just want to say we never have like legitimate dissent on this show. We very seldomly like disagree, even though we don't always agree. We seldomly disagree very strongly. So I was sort of like, all right, cool. Rip it off. Tell me everything. Unload. Unburden yourself. All right. I'm all curious, right. Cole. <laughs> Let's see. If I ever run into Ryan Johnson again, I'm going to rip that phone right out of his hand and I'm going to eat it. 
just so he can get off fucking Twitter. We gotta yes, suspend him from so Twitter. Tired. <laughs> yes, he needs to do something to make Elon so mad that, that he'll get suspended. It might be this film. <laughs> yeah, maybe just have Elon watch this movie. <laughs> As if Elon's gonna watch this, please. <laughs> uh, he's like a divorced guy. He has lots of time to do that. Uh, that's true. Unless he's too busy trying to make up with Kanye West. I don't know. <laughs> Shouts to the Kanye West fresco Ugh. that adorns Edward Norton's like bachelor pad. Oh my god! <laughs> There's a lot of these little references Wait. in it to like canceled artists. There's like Jeremy Renner hot sauce and Jared Leto kombucha. <sighs> Wait, is this a Kanye thing in the movie? I didn't yeah, actually see that. It's in the Glass Onion. It's in their little hangout. It's in the main little circular area along the wall. He's like a saint or a pope or something. I don't know how I missed that. But yeah, the Jared Leto and, and Jeremy Renner, those went over pretty well. Sipping on Jared Leto's hard kombucha. The thing is, I really enjoyed the first times out a lot. I don't know what happened between the first one and this one. This one just felt so much more heavy-handed. The jokes were just, well, one, terribly outdated at this point. I mean, you told me, Zach. Or, well, one Zach. This is getting out of hand. Now there's two of them. Uh, <laughs> But this is a 2020 movie coming out in 2022. Exactly. When you cram in like Dr. Fauci and, you know, Lana Del Rey mask jokes, I'm just like, <sighs> yeah. So I want to throw in the caveat. I had a great time watching this movie. I really like Ryan Johnson. I have one script note. We're kind of talking about this movie in the same way as Barbarian, where it's like, we don't want to say what happens in it because part of the point is the surprise. And I think actually there's like a really interesting similarity between the two scripts of the movies that makes them interesting and unpredictable. And that's what makes them so fun to watch. In terms of the whole like cultural commentary that defines both Knives Out movies, Knives Out was a movie about 2019 that dropped Thanksgiving 2019. It fucking owned its moment. It felt like it fell out of the sky and took over the world. It's a eat the rich class consciousness movie in the year Parasite would go on to win this picture. Like it completely predicted everything that was going to be like what people gave a shit about that year. And this is like the fishnet face mask thing is a joke from April of 2020. This is not its moment. Right. The tone comp I got out of this, honestly, was like Adam McKay, just like very heavy handed, treating the audience kind of like an idiot. And I just, I couldn't look at that. It hurts to say, but I see that comparing anything to Adam McKay kind of hurts. What did I? Oh, I compared, it was white noise. I compared white noise to Don't Look Up because one uh -oh. of the plot events of it, there's like a toxic event and it's like from the novel and they mine certain pieces of imagery to be like COVID shit. I haven't seen Don't Look Up. I assume it's bad because I fucking hate Adam McKay. That's all I know. I wasted two and a half hours of my Christmas day, 2021. So there's that. Oh, that's rough. The other thing that I wanted to say, Glass Onion, is that it's a Netflix movie. It feels like an iteration of a story, whereas Knives Out just kind of felt like a film by a guy who loves genre stories and wanted to write this little three-hander comedy whodunit. And this feels like a branded episode. It feels like turning on your stories at noon, and it's an episode of TV, and then it's over and done with. I saw this on the same day as Fablemans, like I said. I have thought about an image or a scene or a bit of dialogue from Spielberg's movie almost every day since Thanksgiving. I have not thought about this fucking movie at all. Not at all. <laughs> and it makes me wonder if he approached it that way. Ryan Johnson, I mean. Almost all his other movies, I think, have this sort of pathos to them, whether it's The Last Jedi or even Knives Out itself. I didn't really get that here. Just kind of felt like piece of entertainment. There it goes. There's one really great bit that got me. The sweatpants joke. That oh. was great. <laughs> that was like, honestly, maybe the only moment in the film that felt like on par with the original. 
the bit that I thought you were going to mention was it was a tribute to Beyonce. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> the Kate Hudson character in general just feels like a good Cole character. You know what it needed? It needed more Jessica Henwick, actually. Yes. The characters just needed more. Like, you have all these people together and then you don't really do anything with them. That's kind of how the first movie is, too, in my opinion. And I love the first movie, but it really is Ana de Armas, Chris Evans, Daniel Craig. At least in the first one, I remember them a little bit more. I think it's maybe because they are a family. Actually, it's kind of part of the concept of Glass Onion. Their friendship with each other is maybe kind of bullshit. They sort of lack that innate chemistry that a family has when it's like, maybe they don't get along, but that's my uncle. And that's why they end up like all sticking together at the end. I kind of have to agree with you, Zach, where like I haven't really thought about many moments from this since like the drive back from the theater. They didn't really have much of a staying power with me, but I enjoyed the hell out of it while I was watching it. So the movie that we're here to talk about is... The latest from Steven Spielberg, The Fablements. It is a semi-autobiographical story that takes place between the 1950s and the 1960s and loosely tells the story of a young boy called Sammy Fableman. When we're introduced to him and his two parents who are played by Paul Dano and Michelle Williams, they are going to go see a movie, The Greatest Show on Earth. Bert Fableman, the father, is excitedly explaining to young Sammy sort of technical aspects of film. If you've seen that Empire of Light Sam Mendes trailer, heard it a billion times already about the 24 frames per second, etc. But it's a pivotal little moment where you're watching Steven Spielberg's father explain to him the technical elements of film. And then he's immediately taken by his mother, Mitzi, played by Michelle Williams, who explains that movies are dreams, that they're magic, that they're full of emotion and wonder. And then Sammy watches the movie and there's a collision of these two aspects, the technical and the wonder. And there's also collision of a train and he can't stop thinking about it. And Hanukkah rolls around that year. Every day of Hanukkah, he gets a new piece of a train, builds himself a train set. And what does he do? He wrecks it. And his father gets mad about this because it's a nice train set. And his mother like, well, we can't have you wrecking the train set. So what we'll do, we'll film it together. So she helps him to get a camera, to get the film, to begin to put this together. And the end result, as we all know from the process of filmmaking, is that he had to wreck that fucking train a hundred times <laughs> to make a short film that replicated the train wreck of The Greatest Show on Earth. And this is the genesis of potentially the greatest American filmmaker of all time. I was super glad to know that we were talking about this today and then see that Cole, like you said, also gave it a five star. And I was like, yes, so far, one of my favorite movies of the year easily. I just thought that it was so wonderfully made. This is a biopic, but not really so like nostalgic without being very, I don't know. I went into this thinking, okay, it's another Spielberg movie about like the magic of movies or whatever. You know, I gotta say the trailers for this were really kind of terrible, to be honest, but this just blew me away. And I think a lot of that has to do with the brutal honesty on display here, because it's not nostalgia. It's just recreating what existed at that time and being honest about that and being honest about the family dynamic, what Sammy doesn't understand as a teenager, or what Steven didn't understand as a teenager that he does now about the deterioration of the marriage of his parents. Or, you know, the fact that if you are that in love with the movies that, yeah, it can have an effect on you. Eventually, it turns him into almost a control freak in a sense. You know, it's like he can't communicate in any other way than by showing someone a movie. He can't express himself with words or with actions or anything. 
I think that's shown when he finally confronts his mom about what he's discovered. I was listening to the DJ podcast. That happened. That's how he revealed that to his mom. Right away, the key substance of this movie are the childhood amateur films of Sammy Fableman that he makes for fun, that he makes for class. And we see all kinds of them. They begin with this train wreck. The key idea to me explored through the script, which is co-written by Spielberg and Kushner, who he's collaborated with on a few scripts in the past, including most recently on West Side Story. It's as if they're exploring Spielberg's past through the lens of Spielberg's movies, because the two are completely entwined, because there is no way to separate the two, because they are one in the same. And it's such a fascinating, fascinating way to explore the drama of his life. And I have to say, for me, it was really rewarding because I love Steven Spielberg. I mean, I don't just love Steven Spielberg. I've seen every single movie. I've seen all of his narrative features, most of them more than once, including the ones that I don't like. <laughs> because I just, I find his technical acumen, whether you're watching Raiders of the Lost Ark or Munich, he's one of the great filmmakers ever, period, by any metric. And then there's just the wonder of Jurassic Park or the sorrow of AI. This movie is like a cipher for reading all of those. And I find that it actually has a really interesting relationship in my mind with the movie that I would consider to be Steven Spielberg's Rosetta Stone, which is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, science fiction mm -hmm. film that centers around a family fracturing apart. Because one of his parents in that movie, the father, played by Richard Dreyfus, is sort of pulled to leave the family behind for this love that he can't really explain, for right. this draw to the beyond. Being not particularly personally familiar with Steven Spielberg's biography, you can still detect how much that is kind of a centerpiece thematically in his filmography. But I was also shocked to learn in this film that his mom was the one. I went into this thinking like, oh, I wonder if Cole will like this because I know that sometimes the daddy issues side of Spielberg isn't really your favorite. And then I watched it. And I was like, oh, it's a mommy issues movie. Okay, cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's way more up my alley. <laughs> Close Encounters also has a model train crash. Yes, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. I revisited Close Encounters inspired by this movie. And I also revisited Jordan Peele's Nope inspired by this movie, which I think Close Encounters is like a very important part of like all the different little subject matters and things going on in that movie. But it's also just kind of, it feels like Nope and The Fablemans, which I put right side by side on my year list. They feel like they're both looking back at the same texts from John Ford to Steven Spielberg, and then making movies out of them in the modern age. Even if you take nothing else away from this movie, you will take away the fact that Steven Spielberg is the most important American filmmaker of at least the past 50 years. Right. Snubbed on the sight and sound list. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well. What the hell is up with that? <laughs> the critics list. Anyways, I think he was on the director's list. Do you remember for which film? Was it Jaws? I believe it was Jaws. Pretty sure it was Jaws, yes. Which, if any, it probably should be that one. That's my favorite Spielberg. Jaws is also my favorite, but I think this is also just a problem of too many good movies for one person to decide on. That's how um, Howard Hawks misses the list completely. Or Robert Altman. Mm -hmm. Although I think Robert Altman, more yeah. than Spielberg, yeah, Jaws did make the director's list, by the way. I just looked. With Altman, you've got like Nashville, you got someone you can rally behind. I think with Spielberg, it's like, is it Jaws? Is it Schindler's List? Is it Jurassic Park? You know, it's like Jurassic Park's not really sight and sound-ish. There's only a few Spielbergs that really feel like I mean, they match the tone. Someone voted for Ted, too. So really, you can go for anything on are this you, list. 
Who voted for Ted too? I need you to send me that. I don't know. I'm putting together this really big project for next year where I'm going to try to watch everything that people voted for that I haven't seen, even if it made the list or not. It's Christopher Pettit. Whoever that is. He's a UK filmmaker. He actually made a movie called Radio On, which recently got a restoration and is going to be playing theatrically in a few places. It's actually a fun little list because he's got The Great Silence by Corbucci and he's got The Roundup by Jonkso. It's a cool list, but Ted 2 is... I would love to know what was going through his mind there. <laughs> but yeah, uh, back to Fablemans. <laughs> Absolutely great. I think this might be Spielberg's strongest cast, period. I mean, you have Michelle Williams, the actress, not Child of Destiny, the actress, (laughs) as the mom, Mitzi, who is an artist. She wanted to be a great piano player, but now she's reduced to playing piano on TV or at home for the family. And she's the one encouraging Sammy to pursue his art, become a filmmaker, go to Hollywood. Her husband, Bert, played by Paul Dano, career best... There Will Be Blood Maybe? probably still got to be my pick. This is his best since then, in my opinion. I have to agree. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about the characterization of the dad in this movie. But before <laughs> I say any of them, Cole, in your own words, the worse the Michelle Williams wig, the better the performance. <laughs> you know what? And the wig is accurate to real life and also absolutely atrocious. And she delivered. I love how Julia Butters, who plays the eldest sister of Sammy, because he lives in a family of sisters like he's Barry Egan in Punch Drunk Love, apparently. (laughs) I didn't know that. But Julia Butters, who's the little girl from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, also has that same fringe of her bangs. Yep. Imagine working with Tarantino and Spielberg before you turn 18. And the Russo brothers on The Gray Man. Boom. (laughs) Triple threat. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have this struggle between the artists and the scientists in the family. His mom is the artist. His dad is a scientist, computer whiz, who's like figuring all this new, like complicated coding and like putting all these machines together that are like going to help define the future. So he bounces from GE to IBM to all these different companies, along with his best friend, Benny, played by Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen blew me away in this movie. And there's a career best for you. Yes, absolutely. 100%. He was so good. He plays kind of the jubilant counterpart to Bert. Bert is an enthusiastic man about the things that he's passionate about. Otherwise, he's incredibly pragmatic. In fact, you might say that he's enthusiastic about pragmatism. Mm-hmm. He reminds me so much of my dad and so much of me. Oh, wow, I relate <laughs> to everything that you're going through over yeah. there, my guy. But then Benny is similarly brilliant, but not really to the same extreme. You might call it like a Mozart Salieri dynamic, right? Like one of them is a visionary, the other one's an expert. But he's able to kind of explain ideas on a way that's more down to earth and that people can understand. And he brings a joy, particularly to Mitzi, but also to the kids and to everyone around him that just isn't really part of Bert's personality. He's able to really be the life in the party in a way that Bert can. Speaking of the dinner table scenes, I loved how they were constantly just using plastic and then throwing it out at the end of each meal. I loved that. I was really hoping somebody was going to start sculpting mashed potatoes, but to no avail. (laughs) Would have been too close encounters. A little too close to the sun. You've also got the extended relatives, Jeannie Berlin. She is the mother of Bert, the Paul Dano character. I love her too. Jeannie Berlin is Elaine May's daughter, uh, one of the great American writer-directors. She's one of the stars of The Heartbreak Kid. She's a great actress. And having her here really underscores that this is not only the most Jewish Spielberg feature, but maybe the first. 
obviously he's done Schindler's List, he's done Munich, those centered around Jewish characters and Jewish culture, but they're not from the same personal place like this is. Those are movies about Jewish people for Gentile audiences. Mm -hmm. This isn't. This reminds me a lot more of like a Coen Brothers movie. It reminds me of something like A Serious Man, where it is immersed in Jewish culture and imagery and tradition. And Jeannie Berlin is part of that. And then the uncle, who's played by Judd Hirsch, yeah. is also part of that. Uncle Boris. He talks about, you know, his time in the circus and all that. And the art of putting your head in the lion's jaw and making sure the lion doesn't bite your head off. Guy comes in and steals the show in just like one scene. Every actor is so good that they're stealing the show whenever they're on screen. It's like, okay, he's stealing the show. Oh, he's stealing the show. Oh, he's stealing the They've show. all stolen the show. <laughs> It's so incredibly balanced and well-rounded out. I really love the scene between Sammy and his uncle. That scene really lays out the entire conflict of the film. Yeah, and then from that point forward, you can always see Sammy with that in his head. Like, the thing that he loves and the family that he loves. You really see him, like, struggle with this. Because if you give yourself over to art completely, they can't coexist. I think that is maybe, to me, the single biggest defining theme of every single Spielberg movie. Irreconcilable conflicts. There's moral ambiguity, which a lot of movies explore, where it's like, is this good? Is it bad? We don't know. With Spielberg, it's moral relativity. It's one thing looked at from one perspective equals A, from another perspective equals B, Mm -hmm. and they can't coexist. That's the conflict of like every movie he's ever made on some level or to some degree. And here it's like the elemental fissure, art and family work Mm -hmm. and love which we explore through the films that he's made as a child like he makes a war movie and the whole war movie really made me think of saving private ryan yeah can't help it he's filming it and it's like so like bloody and awesome looks like romero stuff like and then it ends on this somber note walking over the battlefield (laughs) of like oh you lost all these men right there you just start to see how he's balancing the emotional tones that would define spielberg film In that scene, what I really appreciated was that you can see something that we all see in Spielberg is that he's a great, great director, great enough to the point where he can just make one of his scout members feel the tragedy and the pain that his character is supposed to, that he actually bursts into tears and can't stop when the scene cuts. And I think it's similar to every experience I've had with a Spielberg movie. Oh, yeah. Every Spielberg movie rests with me Mm. for hours, days, weeks, sometimes. What I also like about it is something that you started to say they're scouts and you see them on bikes and i'm like that's last crusade and that's (laughs) et i only thought of et but last crusade for sure that opening scene indy and the scout unit i was like whoa (laughs) there he goes one of the most important films that he makes is of the camping trip which has a lot of different interesting functions so what happens is the whole family the fableman family and benny go on a camping trip out into the woods. This is when they're in Arizona, and it's before a move to California. The thought of moving is in the air, but they haven't made that decision yet. You just get to explore the whole family dynamic, what's going on with everyone. What we repeatedly see is something that I was talking about earlier. Everybody kind of congregates around Benny. There's a scene where Bert's setting up a campfire, very excitedly explaining to his little girls, he's like, okay, so here's how the tension of the gravity holds all this shit up. And they ignore him to go be with their mom swinging around on a tree with Benny and they're being silly and having fun. And you see him like try to continue to explain to an empty audience (laughs) and he's still trying to keep his excitement up and you're just like, sorry guy, better luck next time. That's me (laughs) on this podcast. (laughs) He's just like me for real. He's me. (laughs) 
Roby explaining things to people that are not interested. I get it, man. <laughs> That's just the life of a film lover, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then the entire camping trip culminates when Mitzi wakes up because she's heard Bert talking about moving to California for this like huge opportunity. And she decides that she's going to dance. Benny and Bert are basically having an argumentative discussion. Benny's basically trying to push Bert to leave the company that they're working for to go work at IBM. Up to this point, Benny and Bert have always been close friends and they've always worked together. But if Bert takes this next step, Benny won't be able to go with him. You really start to see the chasm forming between the two of them. So Mitzi comes in and does like this interpretive dance and Sammy ends up recording it. Benny actually has the idea to turn on the headlights on the car so that way they can capture it on film until one of the daughters is like, Mom, we can see for your dress. And she's like running around trying to stop everyone from recording it. It's one of a few different examples that I think probes into the ethics of making a movie. Is it ethical to take your friend and make him feel these emotions of war, even though he's just an actor? (laughs) Is it okay to film your mother, even if it's kind of lewd and inappropriate? There's such complexities in these scenes that I'm still trying to unravel and unpack, even a couple of days after seeing it. Is maybe just recording all these moments, is that unethical? But then for people who are creatives, it's just capturing that emotion that they feel, as Cole has previously said, like the only way that they can. This is the only way that they can really get their thoughts and their emotions and their point of view of the world out of their head. I think it goes back to the moral relativity. Because if you go around the campfire, all the different characters there might have a different perspective on what he films. And not just what he's filming there, the dance in front of the headlights, but what he films entirely. Because what ends up happening is after the camping trip, once they've revealed that they're going to move, Mitzi becomes very despondent. And Bert is trying to influence his son, instead of making the war movie that I was just talking about, to focus on editing together this camping movie to try to perk his mother up, to lift her spirits, to give her something to be happy about. Because she takes a great deal of happiness out of Sammy making films because of the happy memories of the trip, etc. And then what Sammy discovers when he edits that film, they didn't always know exactly what he was filming. Shouts out to my Chris Marker, Michelangelo, Antonioni, Brian De Palma heads. Whoever knows what they're filming. Right. The process of what a camera does takes photos. And you think that you're filming your mom and your sisters and your good uncle friend Benny walking across a log, having a good time. But if you play it back in the right way, look a little bit closer, you start to notice maybe there was more there than you thought there was. Yeah, you start to notice that mom and uncle Benny are more than just good friends, more like uh, soulmates. Right. What does she say to Bert? He was never really your friend. He was my friend. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you realize through the language of film, a truth that has been unspoken, but maybe understood by some, you are exposed to a truth that then opens a thousand other unanswerable questions. That's what film is. And he's using it to explore probably the most important moment of his life. The most important divorce in American history. Might have a point there. I mean, look at everything that came out of it. What he chooses to do then is something interesting. He omits it. He edits the film together. He cuts out anything that he considers to be evidence. So when he shows his family the movie, I mean, I don't know that we see the entire length of it, but when we watch that 8 millimeter film, it's like a minute long. 
the part that we saw when he's like editing it is a longer reel of footage than what we see as his final cut. Yeah. <laughs> and then he saves all the footage on the side for, you know, the moment when he finally confronts his mother. He keeps it on a reel in his bedside table drawer. <laughs> I mean, where else do you keep the biggest family secret that will tear your family apart? You know, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the motifs that they establish from the very beginning when you're with early young Sammy, that he and his mother will screen films in the closet. That's where they watch the train wreck video, which was a secret from Bert because he didn't want them to crash the toy trains. So when he confronts his mother with the film, where does she watch it? In that same fucking closet. <laughs> Not the same one because it's the house, but shouts to E.T. again, by the way. <laughs> uh, God, she's so good in that scene when you just keep going back and forth between the footage. And the look on her face as she realizes that her oldest child now knows about what's really happening. It's gut-wrenching. <sighs> it's this thing that she can't explain when she really confronts Sammy about it, which is when they're in California. There's a scene where she gets out of the car and they have a conversation with each other. And she says, Bert's the greatest husband anybody could ever want. Guy's brilliant. He earns money. He takes care of me. He's a wonderful father. And I'm fucking miserably unhappy. And that's it. That's such a staple call of like movies that I know that you really enjoy and movies that I really enjoy, where it's like your emotions, your passion, your love doesn't follow ordained screenplay structure. Right. It's thorny and chaotic and it doesn't, you know, have a Hollywood ending. It's unruly and it's messy. These scenes to me felt like Spielberg at this later point in his life, talking to his mother through the film oh, yeah. and saying, I see you, I get you, I know, I understand, and I accept. It's a lot of him really coming to terms with what his parents went through and finally being at a point in his life where he can understand their emotions and why things happened and why things went the way they did. Yeah, I think in a way you can understand the Fablemans as the exact same thing as that 8mm reel. It's Steven Spielberg expressing his feelings for the umpteenth time through a movie. Mm -hmm. It ultimately does feel like a lot of therapy because his parents have both passed by the time they started making this movie. He's thought about making a movie of his childhood since like the 90s, but never fell together. And then he said that the thing you don't want to be the thing happens. And he couldn't have made this movie if his parents were still alive. Not because like they wouldn't approve of it, but that he needed to be able to process that and he needed to be alone for that. I think this ties into a lot of the themes of those hog movies that we were talking about earlier, where it's an open question. You're dealing with your past, but your past touches other people too, which we see explored through the final film that young Sammy Fableman makes in this movie. Once they move to California, Benny tries to buy him a 16 millimeter camera. And he gets it for him and they have this whole confrontation. Sammy doesn't want it because, of course, he's like, dude, you're fucking my mom. <laughs> no, no. And that leads to a period where Sammy doesn't make any movies for a while. He goes to this school in Northern California where he gets bullied. We were talking all about the cast, that the actor that plays this older teenage version of Sammy Fableman. So like good. Eerily like Spielberg, especially by the end when his hair gets a little yeah. longer. Oh, yeah. But he eventually gets pulled back into making a movie because they're having a senior skip day, which is when all the school kids don't go to class. They all go out to this beach and have like a big party and they want somebody to film it, to record it. And he agrees to do that. And he uses a girl that he starts dating her dad's 16 millimeter Aeroflex camera. That girl is the other funniest character. She is hilarious. That bedroom scene. The entire scene. Is just brilliant. <laughs> 
how many movies do you see the protagonist get laid because they're Jewish? I was just <laughs> sitting there. I was like, this is wildly sexually charged for a Spielberg movie. And I was like, you know what? Roman Catholics really are that damn horny when you think about it. <laughs> he meets through a bully character who is cheating on his girlfriend. He meets that girlfriend character and then her friend is very religious, very Catholic girl, and she takes a liking to Sammy Fableman. Spielberg movies, in my opinion, really known for their blocking, the images that he puts together. And the one from this scene that I keep thinking about, it's the two of them at the end of the bed, framed by a heart, and in the middle of the heart is a big crucifix with Jesus on it. And they're making out. Uh, My theater was dying during that part. Interrupted. (laughs) It's just like the way that he responds to her passionate questions. He doesn't want to commit to the things that she's saying, but he totally wants to make out. Right. (laughs) And so then through his connection with her and the opportunity of the skip day, he gets a camera back in his hands and he goes out and he films this event. In this film particular, he films the bully's friend, who's the more openly anti-Semitic asshole, as a complete and total loser who gets like rejected by other classmates on the beach. And then he's like wandering alone, bottle of beer in his hand, stumbling around. (laughs) But he films the bully as a hero. He wins the race and he like wins limbo. And this breaks the bully's mind. Like he cannot understand why in God's name, the person he's been bullying has depicted him as a hero in his movie. It looks like an Olympics film. It kind of looks like Riefenstahl. Yeah, it's to be honest. Yeah, it's a little Olympiad. It's very like Greek God. The American filmmaking convention, something that we will talk about by the end of this conversation, I'm sure, is to film from slightly below looking up to make figures look larger than life. That's the key. That's how American films work. There's a great little quote. Uh, I'll pull it up for the conversation, but it makes his actions, especially with the you know the golden hour sunlight on the beach streaking across the image, it looks poetic, forceful. Slightly homoerotic. Uh, a little more than slightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when you put it side by side with how pathetic he made the bully look and just like some of the more inventive and funny things that he's doing, like they were pouring ice cream on people's faces and making it look like seagulls were shitting on them. <laughs> that was brilliant. I loved that. What I really loved was that the whole thing makes the bully look like the hero. And he's really upset about it because he's like, I'm not that person, though. And now I have to live up to this version of it you created. Right. He interrogates Sammy in a way that Sammy's not ready for, that he doesn't understand the answer to. He kind of rebuts back. He's like, maybe because I wanted you to be nice to me, but he didn't treat the other kid like that. I think the answer might be as simple as, thought the image looked good. It's what was happening. I had a camera. I filmed it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's really the only answer that he can give. After that happens, Sammy graduates. His girl breaks off with him. And he ends up going to college. We see it in a little bit of a coda. The Fableman family has had their divorce. We see Bert has kind of aged a little bit. He and Sammy are living. Are they in Hollywood? Yeah, yeah that's Los Angeles. They go from this huge house to this dinky apartment. I thought that was such an interesting jump. I've seen worse apartments. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen worse. but LA like, real estate, brother. <laughs> <laughs> in comparison to the house that they moved into, like the scene prior, it's a little bit of a dump. Even the, there's a big point in the middle when they're kind of living in this temporary house while the house that they're going to live in Northern California is built. And the temporary house looks lovely. (laughs) They're all kind of like bitching about it because everybody's having a hard time adjusting where they are. 
And Mitzi's obviously having a hard time adjusting. They're like they're bitching about this house, and I'm like, oh, that looks really nice. I don't know what a difference sixty years makes. It was definitely <laughs> an upgrade to their Arizona house. Right. Yeah, and I think that's actually to dig into it. That's part of the idea is that they don't really care about these material objects. They care more about the emotional well-being of the family. A big conflict throughout the movie is that like Bert actually is really proud and supportive of Sammy's filmmaking because he puts so much work into it and because the end products are good. But he doesn't see it as a career. He keeps calling it a hobby over and over again. Yeah. He doesn't really respect the passion that drives people. He doesn't understand that he has a passion for electrical engineering and computing and all the things that he thinks are cool and interesting. He doesn't get that that's what Sammy has for lights and cameras and cutting. Mm-hmm. And it's the same. One thing that drew me to loving this movie is that it reminds me a lot of my family. And when I changed from being a computer science major to a film major and my dad, a lot like Bert, talks about all the effort that it takes to make the things that we use every day. But when it comes to something artistic, like a movie or anything, really, the thought about all the effort that it took to get that made isn't thought of. You know, after I do my work, then we can afford to go do the fun things. But the people who make the fun things have to work to make this thing. There's a moment where Bird is talking about, well, you know, this car, a lot of people work to make this something. And I'm sure that in Sammy's head or Steven's head is, I put a lot of work into these movies that you seem to really enjoy. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a direct connection between the NASA space project that put people on the moon and the cameras that were used in Barry Lyndon. They're not so far apart at all. The history of these technologies are very entwined and one drives the other. And I think that schism between Bert and Sammy is also the schism between Bert and Mitzi because she wants to be the piano player. He probably doesn't see that as very serious. He's like, baby, I got you. I'm going to support you. I make all the money. You You can just, you know. Play your little piano on the weekends. Who cares? I think he does even suggest, like, you should be a concert pianist. That's the uncle. That's Judd Hirsch. Okay, that's Uncle Bor. Okay. Yeah, the uncle kind of unpacks the problem that you can't compromise. That in order to be the wife and the mother, she couldn't be the concert pianist like she should have been. I swear there is a moment where Bert acknowledges it at one point, but I don't remember enough. Bert really supports her playing, but it's the same thing as with Sammy, I think. So he supports it. He's like, this is your talent. This is your hobby. But it's not serious. It's not like your responsibility. And you see that contrast between, you know, wanting to be the great concert pianist and having to be a wife and a mother in the scene where she's preparing to play on TV. But they can't get over the sound of her nails (laughs) clacking against the keys. And they're just like, okay, we have got to chop those nails immediately. But that's like the kind of nail that you would expect a housewife to have. You know, you go through media about the 50s and the 60s, and you see a lot of that. It's that, you know, John Dealman, top of the sight and sound pole, same thing. It's that malaise, it's that lack of passion, just kind of makes you feel like you're in this funk your entire fucking life. The endless routine. The endless compromise. And knowing that you have to compromise because the person asking you to is a great person and loves you and provides for you. And compromising because you love your kids and you want to take care of them. and You want them to grow up and be successful. Like you're compromising for all the right reasons. But over the course of a lifetime, it becomes super- It's going to kill you. Yeah. Just choke the life out of you. And I think what that scene in that apartment at the end suggests is that Bert learns this. And he doesn't want that to be his relationship with Sammy. He wants to support him. 
for real. Yeah. Which ironically, if they had just opened the mail before this discussion, <laughs> <laughs> then you wouldn't be able to film it so cinematically. Yeah. There is a shot in that scene where they, it's so interesting to me because they shoot Bert at this heroic angle from downwards looking upwards. Yeah. But in this context, in the confined room, it makes him just look so small right. and defeated. And then that takes us to, uh, I think the moment that my wife loved the absolute most. Yeah. Do I want to call this the best scene in any American film since Wally? Ooh. Ooh. I might be there. It's when I say that I haven't stopped thinking about this movie. It's true. I haven't. I've thought about many parts of it. I thought about that hallway conversation with the bully quite a bit. I've thought about some of the images with like the train and everything. This is the one. So Sammy finally gets some good news after months and months of rejections. He gets an offer from CBS to do some work as like an assistant of an assistant of an assistant of an assistant. On Hogan's Heroes. Yep. Yep. Over in the TV division. And they're like, yeah, great. We'll have you on. But I noticed in your letter, you said you really want to make movies, right? Well, how would you like to meet the greatest director alive? Earlier in the movie, before they make a Western, one of the first movies that Sammy really makes with this big group of friends was inspired by seeing the man who shot Liberty Valance in the theater. Mm-hmm. And now he's sitting in the office of the man who made the man who shot Liberty Valance, the quiet man, stagecoach, the searchers. She wore a yellow ribbon. How green was my valley? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> You're circling the office with the camera, just looking at all these posters. I was like, oh. Oh, this is so good. <laughs> He's doing it. I love his receptionist. Too. Oh, yeah, she's oh, great. She's a riot. He could be out at lunch for hours. He got five minutes, probably more like one. <laughs> <laughs> and then open the door in walks John Ford, played by America's master of the uncanny the best weatherman alive. If yep. you can believe it. In walks David Lynch playing John Ford. And he's got like a hickey on his neck. <laughs> the eye patch. <laughs> Kiss marks with lipstick. Yeah. You yeah. see the secretary goes into the room as soon as he does. No <laughs> words are exchanged between the two. He walks in. She walks in after him with a box of tissues and she's pulling a few of them out. You get that great pan to like his bookshelf where there's just like half a dozen Oscars <laughs> just scattered all over the top of it. When she walks out, she's got the lipstick that had been covering his face all over the tissues. <laughs> this is like the greatest director cameo since Breathless. Honestly, like I was surprised with how much the theater actually erupted, like recognizing David Lynch. It was incredible. It's the dual moment of it being David Lynch and John Ford at the same time. So you're sort of getting yeah. the reaction to seeing both of them. No way home could never. <laughs> <laughs> According to Spielberg, what John Ford says to Sammy in this scene is what John Ford really said to a young Steven Spielberg on CBS. Word for word. Sammy's in the office just completely dumbstruck that he's in the same room as John Ford. And John Ford's like, so you want to be a picture maker, huh? It's like, look at that painting. Look at that painting. Tell me what's in that painting. Where's the horizon? Find the horizon. Tell me where the horizon is. Go to this other painting. Tell me where's the horizon in that one. And the lesson he gives Sammy about making movies if the horizon's at the bottom of the frame or at the top of the frame, it's interesting. If the horizon's in the middle, it's boring. Now get the fuck out of my office and good luck. So I told you already, I watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind more or less the next day or two after I watched this movie. 
And every single shot of that movie with a horizon, which is like most of them, I was like, where's the horizon at, Steve? Where'd you put it? Is it at the top? Is it at the bottom? I started looking for it in every movie that I've seen since then. <laughs> How do you? I'm, I've been watching movies my whole life. How do you drop a single line of dialogue that totally alters the way that I suddenly just look at every picture? Thrills into your head. You're like, that's really interesting. It's like this great admission from Spielberg, who's, you know, considered maybe the greatest American director alive. He's like, yeah, sure, maybe I am. But I'm still not a tenth of the filmmaker that John Ford was. So after all the dialogue is shared, a refreshed Sammy Fableman exits the CBS lot and is walking away towards the horizon, which is in the middle, the dead middle of the frame. And what happens next? The camera pans up to put the horizon at the bottom of the frame. And... I consider that to be one of the greatest film endings that I've ever seen, truly. The way that it's also done sort of sloppily as well. Yeah. It's like hastily. It's a correction. They couldn't do that. They couldn't film it like that. The camera operators tried. It was too perfect. Steven was like, okay, just give me a camera. Let me try. It was too perfect. (laughs) So they ended up having to recreate it with visual effects. Kaminsky is too skilled. I love that even Spielberg couldn't do enough. He was like, I don't know. I guess I'm just too good. I learned too much. He released this great quote where he was talking about recreating all of his childhood films. And he's like, I did one thing that was really important. I made them all better. I love that. But it's that message, man. You'll always be learning. Yeah, my theater actually burst out into applause at the tilt. There's one guy that we haven't talked about, but I feel like we should. It's a longtime collaborator of Mr. Steven Spielberg, and that's John Williams, who I think was on some Carter Burwell sauce with this score. Going back mm-hmm. to A Serious Man, the themes really reminded me a lot. Just very somber, moody, sentimental music. Just beautiful, beautiful stuff. Really lovely and understated work. Absolutely. People forget that Williams does that, too. You remember him for Star Wars and a lot of the bombastic, memorable themes. But when you let him just cook on something to underscore all the emotions coming out of these images, very few that do it as well as he does. There's just something about it, man. Like the combination between Steven and John in a movie unrivaled. I really think that this is the type of movie that would lead a person to, if not liking his other movies more, understanding them better. Because it is right. such a wise, experienced, incisive reflection on the medium, mm-hmm. on the man that made them, and on the things that he's made. It makes me want to run out and watch all of his movies all over again and the ones I haven't seen. You know, like, I'm not really a fan of Close Encounters or E.T., but I want to go watch those again now based off of what I've learned about him through this. I will say, greatest show on earth, if you guys haven't seen it, don't. <laughs> but if you haven't seen The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, do. Yes. <laughs> The Fablemans feels like the movie that Spielberg was born to make. Literally? (laughs) He had to make it. Like, Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was coming at some point. Like I said, I think it's the cipher to Close Encounters, Rosetta Stone. Those are the two most personal films he's ever made. One of them's coded, the other one's direct. I read an interesting take where someone said, Spielberg's life really wasn't interesting enough to make a movie about and I would agree. I mean, it's not very eventful. They moved a couple times. They got divorced. You know, My parents probably had a more electrifying divorce than Steven Spielberg's parents had. But the reason to watch it is to watch a filmmaker reconciling with his own memories, reconciling with the medium, and all the great stuff about the eternal daughter, the Joanna Hogg movie. It's the same. It's just yeah. watching somebody with an innate, not, not innate, 
he has innate talent, that's for sure. Watching somebody who is a visionary talent, who has spent his entire life in movies, reflecting on what movies mean, and what his entire life meant. It's mm. beautiful. Cole, you said that Spielberg had to make this movie. I think he did. If he doesn't make this the way that it should have been, someone else is going to make this movie, and it's going to be dog shit. And there's going to be like a scene where he's a little kid and he sees somebody riding down the street with their dog wrapped up yeah. in a blanket and the bicycle, <laughs> and then it just cuts to E.T. Whereas from him and his autobiography and the things that we've noted throughout the conversation are like, no, that's real. That's a real thing. Yeah. So then when he peppers in this other stuff, you just get this really beautiful portrait. And then all of his interesting reflections. Let's go back in time to our Jurassic World episode. The difference between John Hammond in Jurassic Park, John Hammond in every sequel to that movie, is that in one of them, he's a very flawed man, a lot of interesting qualities, and in the rest of them, he's God. And that's how that remake would go. That's how somebody else approaching the story would go. They would just deify him. They would not have the ability or the nuance to explore these emotional conflicts. It would be very rose-colored glasses about everything. Or really maudlin, really melodramatic and like explosive fights. Virginia Woolf. Where this is just reality, just recreated in painstaking detail. But the horizon interesting place and film what you see whoever made this movie other than spielberg would have had that horizon in the middle we'll we'll say Uh, that the entire time i'm just gonna start reviewing every colin trevor film like that (laughs) horizon in the middle (laughs) (laughs) i'll just say this is a defining masterpiece from one of the great american filmmakers and run out and see this as soon as you can. The reason why I ended up giving it five stars is because this is a movie that makes me fall in love with movies again. Mm -hmm. The quote I wanted to read comes from a Chris Marker film, two of his on the sight and sound list. What up, my guy, my beloved. And it's from a documentary about Andrei Tarkovsky. It goes like this. The favorite camera angle of the great classic cinema, according to the codes fixed by Hollywood, is a slight high angle which sets on the figures and allows for sky effects. Tarkovsky is generally the opposite. The camera is slightly above the figures who are rooted in the landscape. The naive American contemplates the sky, while the Russian poet settles in the sky and contemplates the earth. That was a movie that I saw a little before this, and the whole Horizon thing really made me think of that. And it made me reflect on what the key conflict I see of this movie is, is that irreconcilability. The Horizon can either be at the top, or it can be in the bottom can't be in the middle. There's no compromise. There's one perspective or another perspective. And you can't make a meet in the middle. Not all the time. And that's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it dynamic. Thank you guys both so much for coming on. Zach, it's been really great having it's you It's been on. great getting to, to talk here on this podcast again. And I hope to hopefully do some more in the future. I'm still thinking about Drive My Car Man, which is like the last thing that you and I talked about on that episode. What a movie. <sighs> what a movie. I still want the sob. You? I've looked into it several times since we've talked about it. Yes. <laughs> you know, if there was going to be a 2020s movie on the sight and sound list, Drive My Car would probably be my first up to bat. This wouldn't be too far behind yeah. it so far. We'll wait for that discourse when 2032 comes along. I look forward to talking to you both about it. Then. <laughs> Cole, thanks of as course. always. What a treasure, Steven Spielberg, and to get to talk about his great work. So thanks everybody for listening. We'll talk to you on the next one. Our next episode. Stay tuned for it. It's our biggest episode yet. 
covering our very favorite Walt Disney animated features, and it's going to come out next week, and I hope that you'll all listen to it. <laughs>